So I'll continue with the reading from Being Dhamma. And uh, this is a series of questions and answers. And this uh, Q&A session took place during the Rains Retreat of 1979 uh, when Ajahn Chah was staying at uh, uh, Bangornok, which is the, uh, the village that Ajahn Chah was born in. And he went and spent that Rains Retreat at the monastery that he ordained in as a as a very young monk. Oh, he didn't ordain. I don't think he, I'm not sure if he ordained there or not, but that was when he, because his preceptor was from Bungwai village. And, uh, but anyway, he, that's where he spent his first two or a couple years as a, as a monk, as a young monk. And he went back, and it had been sort of, crumbling a bit so the villagers wanted him to to stay and and uh, and it got kind of kind of renovated and Ajahn Chah had a break from being uh, the uh, full-on abbot of the monastery even though he wasn't that far away so this uh, first question as to what you were saying about investigating Sankara after the mind has reached an appropriate level of tranquility we have heard this mentioned many times, such as in the instructions for meditating on the 32 parts of the body. By employing concepts and recollection to investigate like this, is one able to come to genuine insight? You do need to use the concepts at first. Actually, the truth can never be reached by thinking and perceiving. Any kind of concept, negative or positive, will not make an end of things, but it's the only way to instruct people. We are talking for the children to understand, to show them that they must do this and this and this. When you get to the end, there will be nothing left. You don't want to be following any mental formations. If you believe that your conceptions are wisdom, then you are constantly led around by them. They are merely sankhara, conditioned phenomena. And the knowing is not a self, and also should be let go. Consciousness is merely consciousness, not a being, a person, an individual, or a self. Put it down. Let it be finished with. Question. How much tranquility should one develop? Enough to be able to contemplate things, to have the mindfulness to make this investigation. Question. So this means remaining in the present, not thinking of the past or the future. You can think of past and future, but don't get caught up taking any of it as real. The mind has to think of all kinds of things, but not believe in it. Understand what thoughts are and that they're only thoughts. The point is not to get caught by thinking and following after it. If you follow after your thinking, you'll always have issues and problems. It's better to end this kind of involvement with appearances. Mind is merely mind. It is not a being, an individual, a person, or a self. This is called awareness of the mind. It is not yours. Pleasure is merely pleasure. Pain is merely pain. When you see things in this way, there are no doubts. What is called investigating or contemplating uses the faculty of thought to look at things, but eventually it comes to see something beyond thought. 
Because as you practice, you learn not to fixate on or believe in these perceptions. Thoughts and feelings are merely thoughts and feelings. That which we are talking about does not arise and does not cease. It abides as it is. Or to put it simply, it is not born and does not die. Let's take this mind. We call it mind in order to have some idea about it, to know its activities. But talking about the real mind, well, what is beyond the mind? Where does the mind come from? When we look at it, we see arising and ceasing. What is arising and ceasing is not actually the mind itself, but some sort of feeling, meaning mental impressions and conceptual activity. The ultimate truth is not something that comes into existence and disappears in this way. But these things that appear and disappear are called mind in the way of designation and convention. In the way of conventional reality, we believe in our mental activity as being what it appears to be and call it our mind. But where does this mind come from? Having had the habit of believing in mind for such a long time, we are not very happy right now. Isn't that so? At first, we have to see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness as the nature of the mind. But the truth is that there is really nothing there. It is empty. We see arising and passing away, but actually nothing is arising and passing away. We see the arising and ceasing by relying on perception and conceptualization. But then we take this perception to be wisdom. We grasp the mental activity as wisdom. This is not genuine wisdom. If it is wisdom, everything is finished with. There is no more involvement. We are aware of perceptions and feelings, but don't get involved with them. We realize that following after them is not the path. Question. How should we practice to reach this point, the true mind? First, you become aware of this apparent mind, realizing that it is uncertain and impermanent. Seeing that clearly, there is nothing you will want to take hold of, and you will let go. From knowing, you let go, and there is no more cause for conceptualizing over things. Then there will be no doubt. The names we give to things are all conventions and designations in the realm of appearances. It is to help people recognize things. Nature just exists as it is. For example, in this building we have the foundation and the upper stories. The basis on which things exist is not born and does not die. The things that are born and die are running around upstairs. Sometimes we call it mind or perception or conceptualization or whatever. But to put it simply and directly, there is no form, feeling, perception or thought. They only exist in the way of designation. The aggregates appear and disappear. They don't really exist. Have you read the story of Sariputta teaching his disciple Purnamantani? I read this story when I was a novice and it has stayed in my mind ever since. A monk was going to take up the practice of ascetic wandering, so Sariputta, as his teacher, gave him some instruction. Sariputta asked, Punamantani, when you are doing your ascetic wandering, what if someone were to ask you, what happens when the enlightened one passes away? How would you answer him? The monk answered, If this question is asked of me, I will answer that 
form, feeling, perception, conceptualization, and consciousness appear and then cease to be. That is all. That was the correct answer. Sariputta was examining his disciple before letting him go to practice the ascetic ways. He had the correct view. The aggregates, having come into existence, then pass away. This finished the matter. When you understand this, you should contemplate it further and develop wisdom to see it very clearly. It is not merely arising and passing away. The result will be recognition of your true mind. You will still experience arising and ceasing, but you won't be drawn to happiness and suffering, and suffering cannot follow you then. Attachment and clinging will be done with. Question. From what you are saying, it sounds like there is something else outside of the five aggregates. Is it called original mind or Ajahn Chah? It's not called anything. All of that is finished. Someone may want to call it original something or other, but it is all done with, exhausted. The original things are exhausted. Question. So it's not called original mind? Answer. As a convention, we can say that, but we don't have any conventions. If we don't have any conventions, there is nothing to talk about. No original or old or new or whatever. Anything we speak about, all those designations, such as old or new, are just convention. Without convention, there is no way to gain understanding, but you should know the limits of it. Question. How much samadhi is necessary to reach this level of understanding? Enough to have control of the mind. Without samadhi, what would you be able to do? Without a well-focused mind, you won't reach this point. It should be enough to be able to see, enough for wisdom to arise. I don't know how to measure how much. What degree of tranquility does the mind need to attain? Let's say to the degree where you no longer have any doubt. That's enough. If you ask, I have to answer like this. Question. Are, quote, the one who knows and original mind the same? No, no. The one who knows is something that can change. It is our awareness. Everyone has this. So, not everyone has original mind. The original mind is in every person. Everyone has the one who knows. But the one who knows is something you can never reach conclusion with. Original mind exists in everyone, but not everyone can see it. Question. Is the one who knows a self? It isn't. It's only an awareness arising. Questioning like this only leads to endless confusion. You won't come to clear knowledge just from hearing another's words. Thinking that if you ask the right questions about all the fine details, you can find out the truth is not how it works. It is really something to be realized for yourself. But take the words and investigate what they point to. <clears throat> you often teach us about meditating on the 32 parts of the body when the mind has been calmed. Should we investigate the 32 parts according to the formula? It's not like that. When the mind is in a state of tranquility, 
investigation occurs on its own. This is investigation within samadhi. It is not thinking. This is like this, this is like that, this is like that. That is ordinary mental activity, investigation outside of samadhi. But when the mind is concentrated, there is no thinking. Contemplation arises within tranquility. The discursive mind that thinks about things during ordinary activities and tries to specify how things are is coarse. It is coarse, but still compatible with samadhi. The important point is to have mindfulness in all situations, mindfulness which is aware of the way things are. Why is it that the Buddha did not have aversion or delusion? It is because he had this kind of awareness. <clears throat> there is no cause for anger coming about. There is no cause for delusion coming about. Where could they come from? There is this awareness ruling your experience. There is nothing more to be done. You have reached an end of doing. You can put it all aside with the mind in full awareness. You don't need to place your attention on anything because the mind is doing it on its own. It occurs naturally. At this point, you don't need to practice samadhi because it is already present. Things can still appear as right and wrong. There can still be feelings of like and dislike, but you just keep letting them go. Whatever things like this, whatever things like this appear to you, let them go, with the recognition that they are impermanent. You come to know the source of things and reach the place that is called original mind, where nothing is permanent, where nothing is anything at all. That is truth. Whatever comes flowing down the stream, when it gets stuck, you cut it loose and let it flow away. What is it that comes flowing by? You don't know, but when it gets stuck, you release it and let it flow on. It is the phenomena of sense objects and mental activity. When phenomena are appearing, you keep on sweeping them out. When nothing appears, you remain in equanimity. Just saying the words is easy, isn't it? This is similar to the business of morality, meditation, and wisdom. The way it's usually presented in Buddhism is that you teach about morality in the beginning, with meditative stability in the middle, and wisdom in the end. This is a classification you can remember. But really, with some people, it isn't necessary to begin by teaching, them, teaching morality. Like Americans, they come to meditate and immediately settle down into pacifying the mind. You don't need to say anything yet about the usual explanation of sila first, samadhi second, and wisdom third. First, just let them sit to develop a tranquil mind. Then some sensitivity will be born. It's as if there were a poisonous snake in a basket with a lid on it. Even if someone were to walk right next to it, they wouldn't be worried because they wouldn't know it was there. They are not yet aware of the danger. Trying to teach morality is like that. You have to be aware of the habits and dispositions of people in different places. For a Westerner, you can just teach tranquil sitting meditation first. Then when the mind is calm, some change will take place and the person will see things differently. At first, even if there is a poisonous creature about, the person is unconcerned because they aren't aware it is there. Sila is like that. 
It's not necessary to go through the precepts one by one. Morality isn't just a matter of reciting. I vow to refrain from taking life. I vow to refrain from stealing. It's too slow that way. It doesn't get to the point. Like a stick of wood, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you pick up the end, the beginning comes along with it, and you can get to the beginning by starting from the end. Or you can start at the beginning and get the end. You can't insist on telling someone that this is the beginning and, this, and that is the end. If people are attracted to samadhi practice, let them develop a peaceful mind through that. Then sensitivity will arise, and they will be able to see things in a new light. Picking up the end, they will get to the beginning, because the beginning and the end are one piece. The changes that come about in the mind through samadhi will enable them to see things, and wisdom will start to permeate the mind. A feeling for what is right and what is wrong will gradually develop. These three aspects, sila, samadhi, and wisdom, rotate and develop by turns. Wherever you take up practice, that is fine. The traditional way is to talk about morality, meditation, and wisdom. It is useful and shouldn't be discarded, but you can't cling to it as the only way. Whatever clarifies the mind so it can be aware of the poisonous snake is useful. Then when there is awareness, there is caution. You will get to the same place either way. Someone who will teach others has to use whatever skillful means are appropriate. When a child from the city goes to the countryside for the first time, they will see all kinds of things they haven't seen before and don't know about. They'll see a duck and ask, Dad, what is that? Sees a buffalo and cries out, Mom, look at that, that big animal. He carries on like this over any, everything he sees until his parents are tired of answering. No matter what they explain, the child keeps on asking because never, they've never seen these things before and is fascinated. Finally, the parents just grunt in reply. The child doesn't get tired of it, though. What's this? What's that thing? What could this animal be? There's no end to the curiosity and questions. But when they grow up, they'll know all about these things, and they won't be a mystery to him anymore. It's like this in meditation. I used to be this way, too. But when real understanding came, the question stopped. <clears throat> Through gaining some maturity in practice and inclining the mind toward investigation, one is able to resolve the questions by oneself. So you have to observe yourself constantly. Each of you has to look carefully to see how honest you are with yourselves and know when you are deceiving yourselves. Thinking is only a matter of conceptualization and creation. If we are not fully aware, we start to believe it is a matter of wisdom. So we follow after it and end up with dissatisfaction and suffering. If it were really wisdom, would it bring any suffering? Still, this is something that can lead to wisdom, something that can cause us to see and to know. Don't get the idea they are far apart. Wherever conceptualization exists, wisdom is there. Wherever there is the created, the uncreated is also there. The uncreated is freedom from conceptualization. 
the created is conceptualization. This is pointed out through many different methods by different teachers. In Zen, for example, they have their ways for imparting wisdom. You're asked a question, and when you answer, they beat you. Bam! <laughs> they ask again, so you don't answer this time, but they hit you again. Hmm, what's really going on here? I might lose my life over this. How should I respond? What should I do? These methods can bring about wisdom. What to do? Going forward is not right. Retreating is not right. Standing still and giving no answer is not right either. Whatever you try, you only get a beating. Some feeling comes about, and you start to seek more deeply for the answer. This is the method of Zen that I read about. It's curious, isn't it? It can really cause people to gain wisdom. However, however you answer or don't answer, <coughs> you are beaten. You lose all your ideas about what is right and wrong. You can't move. You can't stand still. What do you do? You come to the end of your tether, but still there is something more to go through. So the mind keeps on investigating to find a way. Their methods are pretty good, I think. It's mysterious, but for us, it's just a lot of thinking and guessing about the way things are. We know something, but what we know is only what someone else has said. So there will always be more things to ask about and learn, and there are always more doubts. The more things are explained, the further we are from understanding. Why is it like this? What is blocking us? The knowledge itself is blocking us. So you really need to search inwardly. When you keep looking, your understanding will become more subtle. This refined awareness will seem like something very good, but the Zen master doesn't accept it. Get rid of the subtle, I have no use for it. And you get another beating. When the subtle still remains, you have to drive it out. You don't know what to do, where to abide or to go, and you run out of options. It's better just to throw it all away. It is taught that all of our thoughts and feelings are just the fantasy world of mental concoction. It is not real knowledge. It is the creation of fantasy, but we feel it is genuine knowledge. It is knowing without letting go. With real knowledge, one lets go. Samadhi has its difficulties. People can get sidetracked. When I sit, I have so many experiences. I see lights, I see colors. They really get caught up in all this. When they tell me about their samadhi, there's not much I can say. It's just more childish stuff. It really is like a child fascinated by the animals and asking endless questions. That's what a child has to do, because it doesn't know what things are. When it grows up, it will know for itself and won't have to ask any more. I'll leave it there. Questions, comments? Yes, Anthony. Longpore, what is the difference between uh, sensory strain and avoiding, you know, sensory input? Well, I think one of the things, one of the aspects would be a sense of clarity of intention. Um, because there's, there's a... Uh, um, I, mean, there's sen I mean, sometimes they're synonymous. Uh, in the sense that their you know, sense restraint would be just 
avoiding something that is 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 a extraneous input or that or an agitating input and just avoid it but sometimes it's a, it, but it's also i think the 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 basic foundation would be a clarity of intention within the mind and a clarity of purpose uh, in that one is having a sense of composure and continuity of attention so that there's there's a a collectedness of 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 the mind on its on its base as opposed to like getting caught up in the objects of the senses okay yeah and as a follow up is that a benefit to expose oneself to certain things you know to kind of a you know let's say develop an immunity to it as opposed to always avoiding it or or not well i mean that's a slippery slope isn't it <laughs> you know we can it are uh, we you know we're exposed to enough already just having just being in the human condition and being exposed to um sight sounds smells taste touch mental objects being exposed to praise and blame happiness and suffering we're exposed to to plenty already um without sort of you know conjuring up some justification for uh looking for something else that that we really need you know you know obviously we i mean there are things we want to expose ourselves to uh like good teachers and good practitioners good examples that you really want to expose yourself to it gives a, a sense of uh direction and purpose and and uh, uh that's a, that's that's something that the buddha praises and that seeking of of good company and seeking of of the uh, yeah noble noble friendships you're on a roll this morning so, so nobody's asking might as well yeah. get them all out now um have you ever been as a monk or let's say as a monk of many years Have you ever been like verbally abused or physically abused uh by uh, people and how verbally you... abused oh yeah of course uh, it's part of the duties of being an abbot <laughs> um physically abused no 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 No, I can't think of any any uh any situation where I've been physically abused. Yeah, nothing comes to comes to my mind. But but certainly yeah, verbal abuse is 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 quite I mean it's quite ordinary. I mean we, we you know, from time to time we still even early days of going alms round in in uh uh in Ukiah I mean, it would uh, you know you definitely get a certain amount of physical abuse or verbal abuse um the uh but uh these days not so much i think people know who we are and uh, have a certain level of of understanding and respect for what we're doing uh, so it's rare these days that we have verbal abuse other times when it's 
but I can't think of. Um, I do have a memory of of a uh, a monk talking about being in a situation where he really felt that he was going to be threatened. Uh, well, actually, Ajahn, there's a story in Ajahn Chah's uh, biography, Stillness Flowing, of the first, I think it was the first year, first time that he went to England where, you know, some young guys started to be kind of both verbally abusive but then also making threatening gestures and sort of kicking at the monks while the, they were doing going on alms round and uh, you know coming up and and kind of taunting them physically as a physically abusive and uh, and then uh, when and Ajahn, of course Ajahn Sumero was really uh, you know what am I going to do if they actually lay a hand on on the Wacha? You know how am I going to deal with that? There's already sort of planning out strategies, and and, uh, and then in the end, you know, nothing happened other than them being they they just got bored and went off, uh, and uh, then Ajahn, they got back to the Vihara and Lopacha. And they sort of turned to Ajahn Sumedho and smiled. And, oh, you learn a lot on Omtrand in, in England. <laughs> I think you were almost physically assaulted in 2016 across the street. At oh, spring. yeah, that's true, too. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, it was really, uh, he was really, yeah, of course, getting shot at is another thing, too. <laughs> Yeah, I guess you could class that as physical abuse. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, yeah, across. The, huh? Yeah, he was really, really coming up, really in my face, and uh, <clears throat> um, that was uh, uh, Dave Roop was. He was. It really inspired him. How I uh, handled that. That that I didn't. Uh, you know, I didn't punch him in the head. <laughs> so that's what I'd have done. <laughs> that's what Dave would do. But uh, I just uh, kept a, uh, you know, just sort of, well, actually, I mean, I thought, but, uh, yeah, this poor guy's really lost it. Uh, so it was was very, uh, I mean, I stood my ground, but I don't, I wasn't, wasn't fear, fearful or intimidated by him and was and had thoughts of concern for him. This, this guy doesn't doesn't know he's out of his mind really. Uh, and uh, and in the end he just stomped off. And it was really uh, that's our sort of the duty of the the water monk uh, <laughs> knowing how to pacify the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ajahn Saik was there too. Ajahn Saik was there as well, yeah. yeah. He saw that. Ajahn Saik was a, God, it was a new experience for being in America. <laughs> Introduction to American culture. 
okay? 